This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'm Katherine Klein. I'm happy to be here and to be interviewing Derek Handley. Derek is an entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, philanthropist, uh, venture capitalist, and author. And uh, we have a tremendous amount to talk about, so welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So you were just a quick summary of some of the highlights. You uh, co-founded Hyperfactory. You were the founding CEO of the B-Team. You are today and and, uh, this week uh, the Nazarian Wharton Social Innovator in residence, so here at Wharton, thank you, and you are the founder of the newly launched VC fund, Arrow VC. Great. So we have a lot that I'd love to talk to you about, and the, the three subjects, that highly, they're all big, we could spend a lot of time, mm-hmm. um, I think are purpose, mm-hmm. impact invents, investing venture capital, and leadership. Okay. So we'll, we'll see where we, what we can get through. Let's talk about So them. when it comes to purpose, I mean, you have, have thought a lot about purpose, and you found your purpose, and that's been meaningful for you. How did you find your purpose as a business person? Interesting question. I think the common pattern for me has been whenever something really terrible has happened from a business or a life perspective, um, asking bigger questions around what I might be best put here to do. Mm -hmm. And so in kind of moments of crisis, a sense of perspective has often opened up new ideas about where I could be spending my time and how I could be using it. So that's one kind of common element from the past, you know, 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, The other is just experimenting and exploring different places, understanding that, you know, that is a journey and you kind of wave in and out of things that you resonate with. And lastly, the things that I resonate with, really trusting that, um, mm-hmm. that intuition and that instinct to follow that, uh, whatever that particular calling or idea is, and giving it the space and time to really uh, grow right. in, in, you know, within my life. So that's kind of some of the ways in which it's manifested itself. And, and as I understand this, there was, when you were launching Hyperfactory, this purpose and this larger vision for your contribution to the world was less front and center. Yeah. And that shifted. Right. I mean, I was mostly focused then on how do you build a startup, you know, mm-hmm. from where I was in the bottom of the world in New Zealand and just straight out of university. Right. And I had this idea that I wanted to build a company that went global and as a really young uh, person to show that it could be done. So mm-hmm. in a sense, the purpose that I was trying to prove was can we build companies as young kids from New Zealand and, mm-hmm. and make it in the best, right. you know, foot it with the best? So it was around innovation, the thrill, the chase, how do you build a company? Right. And, but when I came and kind of stepped back and looked at, well, what is the purpose and what's the, what's the impact that the company is mm-hmm. trying to have? That's when I looked at much, I guess, a much broader perspective of what is possible. If you're building yes. a company, what might you mm-hmm. try to have it tackle as an issue? And, and has finding that larger purpose been inspiring, daunting, tiring, you know, energizing? How would you describe what, what finding this larger purpose is? I think you feel like you're really connecting with something that you mm-hmm. feel you're here to do, yeah. uh, it's, it's really energizing and inspiring. And to me, one of the tests I have around this stuff is if it's frightening in some way, then it's probably the right place. Yeah. Like if it's a little bit um, like it's going to be difficult and it's uh, you're putting you in an uncomfortable position, mm-hmm then I feel like it's probably where I should be going. If it looks too comfortable and something that 
you think you could do, um, then to me it's as a personal, you know, mm-hmm. uh, instance, it's probably not the right thing for me. Yeah. And is your purpose um, succinct enough, distinct enough that you can articulate it to us? Not, I don't think in a sense that I've, you know, kind of created a slogan out of it. Mm-hmm. But um, at, the, at the macro level, everything that I'm doing now is somehow trying to contribute in some way to a social or environmental issue that I uh, that is that is out there in the world or some sort of sort of injustice that mm-hmm. I think this generation should be trying to transform, whether that's the way we treat uh, global drug policy or the way we think about what should entrepreneurs be building in terms of the companies that people are starting. So that's kind of the macro, um, I guess, thesis. On an individual basis, it's about helping and trying to empower and build confidence in every single person to pursue the the truth that's inside of them as to what they should really be doing with their life. I've Mm -hmm. met too many people who take comp- make, make a lot of compromises and don't pursue the things they knew or know are actually where their dreams lie mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. an enormous number of reasons that they have created that make it very difficult for them, whether it's about the courage or the confidence or uh, practical reasons like, um, you know, uh, I couldn't possibly do that or it's not really mm-hmm. my, my thing to uh, make these changes. And part of the mission we're on is helping all sorts of people realize the things that they really want to do in the world. And yeah. that, you know, investing in entrepreneurs who are trying to create significant change is one expression of that. Mm-hmm. So before we get dig into investing in entrepreneurs uh, and who want to make a difference in the world, any, any advice to people who may be listening and watching and thinking, yeah, I want to find my purpose. What the heck is my purpose? Or <laughs> I don't have time to find my purpose. Well, the... The biggest advice I have in this whole space is taking a significant amount of time to reflect mm-hmm. and think about um, these kinds of questions in the course of your ordinary week or month. Mm. Uh, I think we're in a world where people operate in a whirlwind, battling with an inbox for their whole day. It seems like it start and ends the blur, and then you go home and you kind of just want to, you know, get some relief. But for me, the thing that's always worked is carving out several hours a week to think about the longer term, the, mm-hmm. the bigger picture, and always questioning: Is this where I feel like I'm making the biggest difference? Is this where I feel like my strengths are being brought to bear? And if the answers are not positive uh, for you know enough enough days in a row, then you have to make changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so creating that space is what I think a lot of people struggle with because they think they've just got way too much to do. Right. But actually, if you're doing all this stuff and three or five or seven years later and you look back at it and it doesn't mean anything to you, then actually it's, it's far worse than taking time out now mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. recalibrate and constantly kind of challenge yourself as to whether you're being courageous enough to really do the things that you know in your heart are the things that you should be doing. Yeah. So you've channeled your business expertise uh, and your love of entrepreneurship uh, and your sense of purpose into a new venture capital fund launching today, uh, Aero VC. So what is Aero VC? So Aero is is a new um, initiative that we've been building over the last 15 months. It is spun out of a, a charitable foundation of mine in New Zealand called the Aero Foundation, Aero being you know the word that describes our era, the things that we should be challenged and tackling uh, in so we our should time. probably spell that. It's A-E-R-A. A-E-R-A. Yeah. yeah, it's the Latin 
route. And uh, I looked at the early stage venture space uh, around the world and saw that there was definitely a need for more early stage capital and support for companies and founders who are trying to address a particular social or environmental issue that they felt really strongly about, and they had chosen to build a venture-backed company to do that. So we're looking at companies from all around the world, and in the last year have backed them from you know New Zealand, Australia, Hong Kong, New York, um, and trying to create a community of those, those founders, but also a community of families from around the world that mm-hmm. want to invest in those companies. So it's a twofold community building that we're kind of um, embarking on. Right, right. Uh, and so you've talked a little bit about VC and, and the need for VC in this space. Can you describe more about the companies that pass, you know, pass through your screen, that, that get all the way to this could be an interesting and important investment? Well, the first thing is this core mission has to be something to to address a social or environmental challenge that the founder has stumbled across or has been living in for a long time. That's the first, you know, kind of test. Uh, We have developed for ERA a concept called the ERA Terms, which is like a social term sheet, which has basically three elements. One, the commitment from the founder to build into their DNA as an organization, their purpose as being around this particular social issue. Uh, The second being that they are willing to try as hard as they can to create at least one metric to measure what the progress is Mm -hmm. they're making against Mm -hmm. the issue. And the third is that they are building in some way to, should they succeed and exit and develop a a successful company, that there is some ring-fenced equity that they will pay forward to a nonprofit or an impact investing unit or something like that. So that's kind of how we first look at at the the social mission. Mm -hmm. Then we look at things in the same way that you'd look at an early stage company. So what's the product? What's unique about it? What's the market? Um, What's disruptive about what they're trying to do? And essentially, the most important thing is always what's the founder and the team look like? And Mm -hmm. are they going to be able to deliver, you know, on the on the um, on the vision that they have. So I'm intrigued by this concept of the era terms, right, that that it's been important to you that these terms be explicit. Uh, And you mentioned, right, this kind of deep purpose that's part of the DNA, metrics to measure measure it, and then uh, uh, um, paying it forward upon exit. Um, Why is it important to make those as explicit as a term sheet? For us, it's a it's a way of it's almost like a litmus test. If people are um, buy into that, then we're on the same page. We're on the same um, adventure together. You know, mm-hmm. that's what we believe. The entrepreneur and Arab believe the same thing that this is why you should build companies, mm-hmm. um, and that there is some robustness in the level of rigor around. Well, you're trying to change something in society. Well, how are you going to measure it? Because if you're trying to build a business, you measure your traditional metrics, revenue, margin, whatever mm-hmm. it might be, cash burn. Well, if you're trying to solve a problem in education or health, you need to put your mind also to how you might measure it. And sometimes that's very difficult. But at least if you put your mind to it, I think it helps the founders get some clarity as to at least coming up with some possible way of figuring out whether they're making a dent in the problem they're trying to uh, address. So uh, that's kind of just a way mm-hmm. for us to structure some rigor around uh, making sure a few boxes are checked before we then go into and have a look at how transformative or what kind of potential the company might mm-hmm, have. Mm-hmm. And earlier when we were talking about these companies uh, earlier today, 
you use the term hybrid capital. So I think hybrid organization may be a more familiar term, meaning an organization, a company that may have a for-profit mission and a social mission, mm. and that's kind of a hybrid, at least more familiar to folks I know, scholars of management for sure. This hybrid capital, what is hybrid capital and why, is you, why have you found that important? Well, um, the way I think of it is, uh, you know, a hybrid being the capital coming from both for-profit uh, sources and also from philanthropic sources. It's not a prerequisite when we look at a company, mm -hmm. but we think there's this interesting time at the moment where nonprofits and foundations are willing to invest or grant to for-profit companies if they believe that that organization is doing an amazing job at addressing the issue that they care about. And they don't worry that it's not a non-profit. So mm -hmm. this is happening more and more. So if we look at a company and they're getting non-profit uh, foundation grants, to us it indicates they're doing a very good job on trying to tackle this mission right. because some third party has endorsed it in a way that an investor wouldn't be looking at it. Uh, the ideal for us is that a venture capitalist who doesn't really care about the social issue also thinks they will consider investing mm -hmm. because from their lens, the, the things that they're trying to check off are being checked off. And if those two things can happen, which is rare, but a couple of the companies we have have that, then it means you're satisfying these kind of two ends of the spectrum. And by blending that capital, you're, you're essentially creating you know, a stack of different ways in which the company can grow and scale. And to us, it's really exciting to find those investors investments because the grant capital is non-dilutive. So as an investor, it becomes uh, mm -hmm. you get leverage out of it. And the more companies we find like that in the early stages, the more we can get leverage from our early stage investments. Right, right. It's very interesting because right, you have you have uh, well philanthropists and investors to use the traditional terms applying different criteria. Exactly. Right, and seeing in this company something that they both value. Exactly. Yeah, that, right, I, I get that. That's to us, to us as the sweet spot. Yeah, exactly. So the, the last thing I wanted to discuss with you is leadership. You've had, you know, you've been a leader. You've worked for it as part of the, the, the B team, uh, the first CEO of the B team, and we can, you can talk a little bit about the B team. You've seen a lot of extraordinary leaders, and now, of course, you're investing in leaders. So... Let's let's um, give folks. I'll let you describe what the the B team is and who's involved, and then let's talk about what you've learned about leadership. Okay, yeah. So the B team uh, was an idea that uh, Richard Branson and the Virgin Unite Foundation had a few years ago, which was essentially um, in the beginning of this kind of movement of corporate CEOs wanting to figure out how they can create mm -hmm. more sustainable or socially oriented businesses. Richard wanted to build a collection of leaders like that from around the world to help each other, work with each other, advocate for issues, and also pilot different ideas in their own organizations. So I had volunteered a year of my time to help Richard build this idea and essentially scout the globe to find iconic leaders from around the world, uh, like you know Ratan Tata in India or um, Guillermo Lial from Natura in Brazil, and produce a team that a lot of them hadn't met before, but bringing them together on the same page to help catalyze a movement that's, you know, picking up pace, which is how does business move from being myopically focused on profit to being focused on people, planet, and profit. And that movement is, I think, what we're increasingly wanting to see happen, and the B team is trying to be kind of a, an icebreaker and, a, and a, you know, at the spearhead of it. So being exposed to that experience and all the various types of people that mm -hmm. were involved from, a, a, heady, a heady group. Yeah, I mean, all sorts of people from Muhammad Yunus, for, who's a microfinance pioneer, pioneer, to Ariana Huffington, who's now obviously pioneering around well-being and sleep mm -hmm. and issues that are becoming more better understood in the zeitgeist of 
Um, how do we take care mm -hmm. of ourselves so that we are personally sustainable? Right. Uh, so these are these kind of shifts that are happening in the world that organizations like the B Team are trying to help tip into more of a mainstream movement. So as, so as you think about, you know, you reflect, and you're obviously someone who does reflect a lot, as you reflect on your own leadership experiences as a leader, as a follower, interacting with these leaders, now investing in these leaders, what are the, um, well, let's start with you. What are the, the characteristics, the practices that you aspire to uh, enact as a leader yourself? Well, something that I care about, I guess, you know, it's a particular thing for me, is what does the future look like? So I invest a lot of time and energy in thinking about where are we going, what's the possible vision of um, things in society that need to change mm -hmm. and systemically should be, you know, evolve this century. So the B team is a representation of that. You know, where does capitalism move mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. evolve given that what we've learned and what we've seen with regards to the planet and also social issues that still are struggling. Um, that applies to other areas like, uh, as I mentioned, drug policy, where we're seeing that after 30, 40 years of a war on drugs, it isn't working. There's a lot of challenges with it, and we need to rethink mm -hmm. our view on it. So for me, that's one of the things I like to um, make sure that I'm always thinking about what's behind the next, next corner, and where do we need to start you know, thinking about. Uh, the other piece, I guess, goes back to the idea of like reflection and making sure that in my world that I'm doing the things that I think if I died tomorrow, I wouldn't have any regrets in mm. how I'm spending my energy, my time, any resources I might have or how I might, um, you know, uh, deploy them. And that goes for, also for people I meet or work with, you know, mm -hmm. so younger people or anyone that I know or see or friends. To me, um, being a leader in a community or in a family or with your friends my particular angle on that is helping other people make sure that they're really being bold about how they live mm -hmm. their own lives mm -hmm. and are making courageous decisions because, you know, it is very short, in a sense, um, life. But if you are bold and courageous about what you're doing, I think, as the Roman philosopher Seneca can say, said, is life is long, you know, if you know how to use it. The problem, I think, is that too often we're encouraged to be on a, a, on a, wow, a mouse wheel and... Mm -hmm not look back and forward enough to make sure that we're on the right, you know, the ladder's up against the right wall because you can climb up it for 20, 30 years and realize it's a totally wrong wall. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's a pretty sad thing to do that, you know, right. I think the longer you, you go on. I'm interested in your, you know, in your description of vision. Why is that important? I mean, I think at some level we say, oh, right, vision. Leaders are supposed to have vision. But Why? Again, this is just from my point mm -hmm. of view, right? I'm not some kind of leadership expert, but unless someone can inspire a broader mission for me to be a part of, a movement or a mountain to climb or something like that, it's hard to get me motivated and excited about it. So I think about how do you motivate, motivate and excite people to push themselves to mm -hmm. uh, be who, who, who they are and all that they can be. Well, for me, a large part of that is inspiration and direction. And at a point where you don't feel like there's a challenge or something inspiring to follow or, a, you know, a moonshot of some sort, um, I think it can get ho-hum and people can kind of get mm -hmm. into a cycle. But if there is a moonshot, if there is an audacious challenge or if there is a direction that you believe in and that you can buy into, I think that's what motivates um, organizations and people and teams and whether they're a sports team you know, mm -hmm. or a company. Right. And that, that whole thing, to me, if you can't articulate 
uh, and paint a picture or a vision, I think that there is a strong element of leadership that is kind of being left, you know, unaddressed. And there are lots of leaders who do not do a lot of that. Mm you know, I think leaders of cities and countries sometimes don't do a very good job of that, and they become more managerial and administrative than visionary. Mm-hmm. It's just my my f- personal bias is towards leaders who can project, we're going there, and these are the reasons why we're going, and you should come along. Yeah, yeah. So earlier uh, today when we were talking about leaders, you mentioned another quality, and I'm wondering how that fits in, because you've talked about vision, and you've talked about boldness. And earlier when we were talking today, you talked about coachability. And I have to say, when I think about leaders who are bold and visionary, I would think there's a real risk that they're not that coachable. (laughs) So talk to us about coachability. Well, it's kind of this this double-edged type of thing, right? I think the vision and the boldness and the conviction of what you're trying to do and the idea, Mm -hmm. I think that's where you you want that persistence and that... um, that that unrelenting kind of commitment. Mm-hmm. But how you get there and how you go about getting there is where I think you need to be able to be flexible and coachable on where you might not see blind spots or you might not be strong enough certain areas. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at an entrepreneur, you might agree entirely with where they want to go, but if it seems like in the first 9, 12, 15 months, it seems like some of the things they're doing aren't working, you want the entrepreneur to be able to recognize that, acknowledge a set of external possible advisors and inputs, and then make and synthesize their own decision as to how they're going to modify their behavior or their approach. If you can't, if you can't embody that kind of um, behavior, then it becomes very difficult for anyone to help you out of a situation. Mm-hmm. So I've invested in certain companies where the founder would n- not change their view on the world, even though it was showing that nothing was working. Right. And those companies, they and that particular company, for example, died because they wouldn't change their mindset. Um, they were fully committed to exactly how they were executing when it was clear to everyone outside them that it wasn't you know, working. So that's just the kind of an element that I think um, – even I think everyone should have that, you know, that ability to make sure that, you know, when you're 60, 70, 80, 90, you should always be able to have, as we were speaking about earlier, a beginner's mind, because then you can never be accused of being stuck in your old ways. And you can never be uh, find yourself in a situation where you're isolating your perspective on something and that the whole world has totally shifted. And, you, you know, because people say, oh, I'm to- too old to learn new things or I'm too old to change my ways. And to me, that's the antithesis of what life is about. It's a constant organic evolution. And the moment you think you've got into a point where you're too old or you know too much, um, I think that's when a lot of the, the beauty of life is kind of lost. And to mm-hmm. me, the biggest challenge, I guess, of living would be to constantly have or try to have, you know, a beginner's mind. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for being with us, Derek Hanley. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.